God, that you would speak, that you would move in this place this morning. God, that your presence would overwhelm us. That we'd be stirred by your word. And God, that we, God, that we would leave here challenged. That we leave here refreshed and recharged. But more important, we'd leave here ready to serve this city, our families, our friends, and those around us. God, anoint Byron, speak through Byron this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus 20, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, a couple things, first I want to say thanks to Mike for uh, coming and leading us this morning, I always appreciate it when he's here. Um, Mike, we are hiring, um, just want to throw that out there. Secondly, just thanks to uh, our band and the guys that are up on stage with him and, and everybody that leads us every week. We have a lot of talent up here, and I don't know if you guys recognize that. Uh, they didn't have time to really practice, and they pretty much put that together today in about an hour and a half. So, uh, and one of those songs they'd never heard before. So uh, that's just how good uh, Chad and, and Jeff are, and so we're just so thankful for them. And uh, anyways, I want to brag on those two guys in particular. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to read uh, the first three verses. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for all you've given us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it shows us. Uh, thank you for the commandments that you give us, Father, and that um, by obeying those, we're set free uh, to live life the way that, that you intended for us to live it. Um, it's freedom to go and play and to enjoy uh, all the, the wonderful uh, gifts that you've given us in this world. And so I just pray that we would see that today um, and that, Father, you would convict us today, each and every one of us, for the functional gods uh, that we all tend to serve and worship. Uh, above all, point us to the one true God. Point us to Jesus Christ who did what we could not do when it came to the law, and he lived the life that we should have. He kept it perfectly. He took our sin upon his shoulders. He died the death we deserved. He paid the penalty for our sin, and then he rose again, securing our salvation. And now he stands at the right hand, and he intercedes for us. And Father, that is wonderful good news, and I pray today that we would make much of Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we just went through chapter 19, and let me just tell you kind of what we're going to do. I was thinking about it, praying about it this week, and so we've kind of come to the decision that we're going to take 10 weeks and go through each one of the Ten Commandments, one at a time. Uh, and then when we're done, we're going to wrap up Exodus. Uh, we're not going to go all the way through chapter 40. Uh, I just started thinking about it, and I went, I bet not one person in here has probably ever went one at a time and looked at all 10 of them. Uh, and Mariah was like, well, can you actually like preach a whole sermon? I was like, oh, yeah, can I? Yeah, we, we, we can preach a whole sermon on each and every one of these. Uh, and so that'll do a, a couple things for us. One, uh, that'll kind of get us through this turbulent season, right? Because uh, we all know everything will end in November and we're all going to be better after that. Um, but it'll kind of get us through there. And, and I think God's law is important as we kind of approach that time to kind of see how life works best. Uh, but two, that'll bring us right up to about Advent. Uh, where we can uh, just turn our focus to Jesus Christ and his birth, uh, and we can celebrate that time of year, okay? 
So uh, Exodus chapter 19, uh, we looked at that the last couple of weeks. That was the heart of the Old Testament, as we said. And pretty much what's going on in that chapter is that God is setting us up for this moment. This is the big moment. This is what God has been waiting for, that he has rescued a people. He's brought them out of slavery. He's brought them to his mountain. And now he's going to give them his law. He's going to set them aside. And he's going to create a people that are distinct from all other nations in the world. And if you remember in chapter 19, he, very, um, he, he reminds them that, hey, I'm the one who did all the work. I rescued you. I saved you. I carried you. I brought you. You didn't do anything. You didn't help me. You didn't decide to do any of this. I did all this. I did that. Okay? That was me. That was my love. That was my mercy. That was my grace. And so because I've showered you with mercy and grace, now obey me. Because of what I've done for you. In other words, find your joy in my joy. And what do the people say? Yes, we'll do it. And last week we, we looked at the end of chapter 19 where God descends on the mountain in thunder and lightning and earthquake. And what we saw was a picture of a holy God who was not like us. He warned the people, don't get too close. You get too close, you die. And as Moses goes back and forth between God and the people, we're going to now see what God's law is. We're going to see what God wants from us. Now, before we get into the law, there's a few things that we need to cover so that I can kind of help you understand it a little bit better. Because there's a lot of confusion when it comes to God's law, I think, in particular. Especially as you read the Old Testament and then you jump into the New Testament, it gets a little tricky, okay? So when we talk about the law of God in the Old Testament... We're referring to the 613 commands that are found in the first five books of the Bible. 68.5% of the first five books of the Bible are laws, right? And I can see from the look on your faces, not many people get excited about law, okay? If I told you, hey, the IRS just came out with a whole new tax code, and for the next 10 weeks, we're going to break it down line by line, it'd probably just be me and Travis in here, Okay? And I bet he wouldn't even sign up for that. He's not here, but, but y'all can tell him I said it, okay? And he may, I don't know, he may be on the front row with popcorn ready to go. I don't know. God gives laws. God gives commandments. And I know a lot of people say, well, that's the Old Testament God, Byron. He gives laws and commandments. New Testament God, all grace, mercy, live however you want, baby. It doesn't matter. Well, you will be disappointed to find out that there are 1,050 commands in the New Testament. So God is the same God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So God gives laws. God gives commands. And in the Old Testament, those laws are usually divided into three categories, and those three categories have three uses. Okay? So let's look at the three categories. The three categories are civil, ceremonial, and moral. So the civil laws were laws that governed the nation of Israel under God. So, so these laws included guidelines for waging war, for restrictions on land use, on regulations for debt, and penalties for violating these legal codes, much like today, right? You break the law, you get in trouble. The ceremonial laws were regulations on religious celebrations and worshiping God. So these were the things that you read about where it talks about clean and unclean foods. It talks about ritual purity, how we're to bathe and how we're to dress when we approach the Lord. It's guidelines for the conduct of the priest, how they were to act when they came into the Lord's temple. And above all, it was guidelines for the sacrificial system. 
what we're to bring in, what kind of animals were to be sacrificed, how they were to be sacrificed. It had all of those things. And then the moral law. The moral law summed up in the New Testament, and it is the righteous eternal standard of our relationship with God and others. Joe read this this morning in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So as you look at the Ten Commandments, the moral law, we see that the first four refer to our relationship with God, and the last six refer to our relationship with others. So we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, and then love our neighbor as ourself. Now, these first two categories, civil and ceremonial laws, they are no longer binding on us New Testament believers, okay? The civil law expired because the church is not a state. Now, we do have a king. Christ is our king. He is our Lord. But our kingdom that we live in now is a spiritual. And although the civil laws contain principles that are useful for governing nations, God's people are no longer bound to those, all right? The ceremonial law is no longer in effect. The reason is, is that all of those regulations pointed forward to Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 17 says, These are the shadow of things to come, but Christ is the substance. So see, this is seen most clearly in the sacrifices. What does the Bible tell us? Is that Christ offered himself up once and for all as an atonement for sin. Okay, And so I remember growing up, and maybe you still have heard this or maybe believe this, but we've been taught that, oh, one day Israel's going to bring back the sacrificial system. Okay, listen to me. If they do, it'll be purely theater. That's it. For us to go back and begin to offer sacrifices again after Christ, the ultimate sacrifice laid down his life once and for all, would be to spit in the face of that sacrifice. So those things are no longer binding all right? Philip Ryken puts it this way. He says, the ceremonial law and the civil laws were types and figures pointing forward to the cross and the kingdom of Christ. Now that he has come, they've been set aside, which is why the New Testament sometimes seems so dismissive of the law. Okay? See, there's the, the disconnect. Because we'll read the Old Testament and then you get to the New Testament and it seems like they're disparaging the law all the time. Like, law bad. Stay away from the law. We don't like law. But what it's talking about is the civil and the ceremonial law. That you and I are not saved by the law. Our salvation does not depend on our ability to keep the law. So the Bible will repeatedly, even in the Old Testament, condemn any attempt to use keeping God's law as a way of justifying ourselves. As a way of saying, hey, look how good I am or how righteous I am. It condemns that every time. Okay? So the civil ceremonial, no longer binding, but hear me on this. The moral law is still binding on every one of us sitting in this room today. Calvin said it this way. He said, it is the true and eternal rule of righteousness. Ernest Ressinger describes the moral law as the eternal standard of right moral conduct, a fixed objective standard of righteousness. So what we need to know is that, what we need to remember is that the character of God is also the character of Jesus. What does the book of Hebrews tell us? That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and he is the exact imprint of his nature. 
Jesus himself even told us this. Mike read this this morning. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, right? You could translate that, not a jot or a tittle. So in other words, the little periods that we put above our eyes or the commas or any of those things. He says, none of that will go away until heaven and earth pass away. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't have time to go through this, but every single one of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament, either by Jesus or by the apostles. In fact, whenever you get to the Sermon on the Mount, what's Jesus do? He takes the law and he takes it a step further. He doesn't get rid of the law. He carries it out further. So Jesus will say, hey, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, right? In other words, he says the physical act of adultery, don't commit adultery. But Jesus says, hey, wait a minute, let me show you something. Even if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, don't murder. So the physical act of killing someone, Jesus says, don't do that. But then he says, let's take it a step further. Even if you hate somebody, you've murdered them. See, Jesus is saying, there's a lot of people out there that could follow the physical law. In fact, we know those people, don't we? The Pharisees did it. The rich young ruler did it. Didn't he remember when Jesus said, hey, do all these things? He's like, I've done them all. But Jesus says, let's get to the heart of it. And he said, if you get down inside there, you haven't done all that I've required, okay? So the moral law, the Ten Commandments that we're going to go through, those things are still binding on you and I as believers. We can't get rid of those. Now, the three uses of the moral law are as follows. The first use of the moral law is that it's a school teacher. The Greek word is pedagogos, a schoolmaster, a headmaster. Or if you will, you can look at it as an MRI. So the, the law, it shows us the character of God. It shows us that he's holy. It shows us that we are not. It shows us that we all fall short of the glory of God. Again, we look at Jesus. He says, maybe you can keep the physical aspects of the law, but let's get into the heart and show you that each and every one of you fall short. That we're sinners. That we do not obey as we should. And so the law teaches us both about God and ourselves. And listen, it shows us our need for another who can perfectly obey in our place. The law points us to Jesus who kept it perfectly for sinners like us. So first and foremost, that's what the law does. But listen, second, the law restrains evil in society. So, so many of our laws in this country and a good deal of our codes of conduct and everyday life have been shaped in profound ways by God's law. Right? That's why we hang them up in courthouses. That's why we still respect those things is because they have used those to shape, God's, uh, to shape law. See, without God's law, society would be in much worse shape than it's in. Okay, and I already see you looking at me like, Byron, have you turned on the news lately? Yeah. We're seeing what happens when we throw off the restraints of God's law and what we choose to do, what's right in our own eyes. We're seeing that play out. Okay? John MacArthur in a recent article for the Daily Wire, said this. He said, although public discourse today is full of cries for justice and structural change, there's simply no way to affirm any coherent standard of justice, much less is there any hope of change for the better apart from a sweeping return to the God of Scripture who is the source of all truth. 
So when we take God's laws and we throw them out and we do what's right in our own eyes, we don't get racial reconciliation the way the Bible talks about it in Colossians, right? Where he says there's no longer Jew or slave or free or Scythian or barbarian, right? But now all have come to the foot of the cross and now we're all level and we have reconciliation because of the cross. Instead, we get critical race theory, right? We we don't look at the government and understand what's happening in our world to see that, hey, Romans 13 does say to obey the government, but it also implies that the government's looking out for our best interest as well. And whenever the government isn't, that's the point that we say, well, wait a minute. We're going to have church. We're going to sing in church. We're going to do those things. But see, when we throw out the truth of God's word and we rely on ourselves, we get the things that we see now, okay? So you see why the law restrains evil? It's a good thing. But the third use, and this is one we don't talk about a lot, is what Calvin called the principal use of God's law or the normative use of God's law. So God gave us his law because he intended it to be the norm. It directs us to live for his glory. Now that Jesus has come, the condemnation for not keeping the law has fallen on him. Okay, you get that? So now when you fall short, if you're in Christ, there is nothing but grace and love and forgiveness. There's a God that says, hey, I get it. I paid for that. Now get back up and continue to pursue me. There's no longer any condemnation for our failure to keep the law. All right? Everybody gets that? He's taken that away. But listen, just because the condemning power of the law is gone does not mean the commanding power of the law is gone. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. That's tweetable. Just because the condemning power of the law is gone, it does not mean the commanding power of the law is gone. So Jesus now comes along and he speaks the law no longer as a rebuke, but as a guide. Son, daughter, let me show you how life works best. Wait, come here, come here, come here, come here. He doesn't have the voice of a judge, but the voice of our Savior who guides us in paths of righteousness. But the law is also a prescription for a Christian. In other words, it's saying, hey, here's how you should live. Here's how life works best. It's the description of the character of God that he wants to work in the lives of all believers and in the hearts of all who follow him. So listen, if you'll keep these principles in line that I just shared with you, it'll keep you from doing the two big things that we do. One, it'll keep you from underestimating God's law and falling into moral indifference to where we go, oh, the law doesn't matter anymore. We don't have to obey that, right? It's all grace, baby. Live like you want. It'll prevent us from doing that. But then the other thing is it'll keep us from prideful self-congratulations where we go, oh, I'm killing it. Look how well I'm keeping the law. I'm so awesome. It'll keep us from that because then we'll realize, no, I'm really not doing as good as I think I am. I really need a Savior, right? So Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. This is kind of the preamble if you will, to the Ten Commandments. Verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. First things first. God spoke. God spoke. It says, and God spoke. That, That word God in Hebrew, that's Elohim. That's the mighty one, the true God. He's speaking. And he says, this is what God says. So it's not what Moses says. It's not what Byron says. It's what God says. So what we believe in this room as Bible believing Christians is what God says the Bible says and what the Bible says God says. Okay? 
So if you come to the Ten Commandments in the next ten weeks and you go, well, I, I disagree. Well, then you disagree with God, not me. See, when you open the Bible every time, you should understand that God is speaking to you. Like, we don't open this up and go, man, there's a whole lot of speculation about God in here. Yeah, that's cool. No, every time we open it up, we believe that this is revelation from God, that God is speaking to us, that God has something to say. So right here, he says, I am the Lord your God, right? There's his name. There's his personal name. I am Yahweh, the true God. And I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So one more time, in the preamble, before we get to any law, God tells him, I've saved you, I've rescued you, I've done all the work of salvation. That was me. It wasn't you. That was me. We've had 19 chapters of nothing but grace and mercy before we get to one chapter of law. Right? I love how Tim Keller always puts it. The Bible's never about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he's done. And anytime we get to a command, it's always prefaced with what God has done first. See? And that's what's happening here. See, God didn't tell the people to obey and then I'll save you. So he didn't say, hey, do all these things and then I might adopt you. No, he's reminding them. I have adopted you. You're my people. I saved you and I have rescued you from slavery. I'm going to tell you something, every one of us in this room, slavery is the problem for each and every one of us. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 says this, they promised them freedom, right? Talking about sin, talking about things like that, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever comes a person, to that he is enslaved. So I heard a pastor say one time that we don't use this language of slavery in our culture anymore. I don't know if it's because we're too PC or, or what it is anymore, but what we do is we like to say addiction, right? He's just addicted to that. They, they have an addiction problem, right? That's just secular concept for slavery. So when somebody says, I'm addicted to alcohol, no, no you're enslaved to the bottle. Well, well, I'm addicted to substances. No, you're enslaved to substances. Well, you don't understand. I'm addicted to gambling. No, you're enslaved to gambling. Well, I'm addicted to my body image. No, you're enslaved to your body image. You're enslaved to your performance, to your income, to your stuff. On and on we could go. Whatever has a hold of you, it's not an addiction. It's slavery. It's tying you down. And we all have different shackles that we wrestle with throughout our lives. The children of Israel have been enslaved, and God says, I freed you, I rescued you, now I am going to show you how you live free. Okay? So again, he loves them, he saved them, they haven't earned this. This is God in his mercy has showered them with love. He knows what's best for them, and he's going to show them how to live. Commandments and rules are different when they come from a father, especially from a loving father, amen? Amen? And I know some of you not had that, and I'm sorry if that's you, but, but can I tell you what a loving father does? A loving father says, I love you. You're mine. I'm proud of you. You're good at whatever it is. A loving father says, there is nothing you can do to make, you love me le- make me love you less. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more. A loving father hugs his children. He prays for his children. He spends time with his children. But a loving father also gives rules, doesn't he? We give rules because we want our kids to flourish and have life. 
So, so we don't just drop rules, and then if we follow the rules, then we love them, right? So I don't know, kid, clean your room, and then maybe I'll give you a hug. Get straight A's, and then maybe I'll love you. Catch every pass, make every basket. I'll tell you what, you do that, then maybe, maybe, maybe dad will appreciate you and tell you he's proud of you. It's not what a good father does. A good father says, I love you. And because I do, let me show you how life works best, okay? I'll give you a couple examples. I live right off of 8th Street, and there's some idiots on 8th Street, okay? I'm just going to tell you. I don't know why. Not, not y'all, Dustin. I saw you over there. I'm not talking about you. I saw you. No, that's not I guess it's because they want to avoid the school zone or because there's no stop signs or what, but people will fly down 8th Street, and they go really quickly. Well, where I park my car, it's hard to see around it. And so in the mornings when Lucy wants to go to school, because she drives herself to school now, okay, she'll pull out, and I have had to scream at her before. You look around that car, right? And, and I've had to get plenty mean with her about it. Now, am I doing it because I'm mean? No. I know she pulls that wheelchair out there in front of some moron that's driving 40 in a 15. Bye-bye. It's not going to be good for her. So because I want her to live, because I want her to be careful, I've yelled at her and I've put rules down. Now, she doesn't follow them, Right? Yesterday, she was only supposed to go to the end of the street, and Kim Brock comes by with her behind him because she went all the way over to his house. So we got in trouble for that. Right? Now, I don't do those things, again, because I'm a jerk. It's because I love her and I protect her. I want her to, to see how life works best. Right? Lincoln, we've got a rule, and I've been teaching him this since he's been able to speak. Lincoln, what do we do? What do boys do? And he'll tell me every time, we take care of girls. Dang right we do. And because we take care of girls, you know what happens when you don't? Yeah, you get lit up. If he's hit his mama, I had knocked him across the room one time. It was great, okay? Not like an abusive way, okay? Don't go, oh my God, I'm called CPS, okay? Like, I come around the corner one day, and I see him hit his mom. He doesn't see me behind him. Wham! Hit him on his rear, and I mean, he slides across on his knees. Ah! I've spanked him when he's hit Lucy. I've spanked him when he's hit Ellie. Now, am I a jerk? No, he's going to grow up to see, you know how life works best? In particular for you as a male, it's going to work a lot better if you'll take care of girls and you'll honor them and you'll love them and you'll respect them and you'll care for them. So one day when you're a father and you're a daddy, you can take care of them the proper way, the way that God intended, right? It's not because I'm a jerk. I want him to see that those laws that I'm giving them are there to preserve them so that they can live and then they can go run freely and play in the yard. This is what God's laws are. They're freedom. God's saying, hey, kids, I love you. I've saved you. I'm your dad. I want you to go play in the yard and have all kinds of fun. I want to remove your shackles of slavery, and I want you to be free. Now, here's what I want you to do. I saved you. I loved you, and I want you to be free. And so verse 3, what does he say? First command, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, we get this one wrong, we're going to get the rest of them wrong. No other gods before me. That is literally translated, no other gods before my face. I don't want anything else. He's not saying you could have another god as long as he, he stays second, right? 
That's not it at all. He, he's saying, I will not have a competitor. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I'm the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. We always use this kind of like illustration, and I understand why we do it, but it's really bad where we say, it's God first, and then everything else is second, third, you know, down the list. Okay, I get that, but when you say it's God first and there's something else second, that's implying that God has a competitor. That, that's implying that that person under God is, you know, it's close second. I'm running right there with God. Maybe I'm going to pass him one day. No, no, it's God in the middle, and it's a hub, and everything else comes around him, right? So, so if I take Mariah out for our anniversary, right? Back in July. Okay, we missed it. But next anniversary, it's 15. I'll take her out. Like, honey, listen, I love you. You are my favorite wife. Now, unless I'm Brigham Young, that's not going well for me. Okay? It's okay. It was a Mormon joke. You can laugh. It's okay. It's okay. They're not Christians. It's okay. See, my wife doesn't want to be my favorite wife. She wants to be my only wife. And see, this is what God's saying. He's saying, hey, first things first, kids, you can't live free until you realize there is one God and you are not it. God is saying, hey, you don't get to, to be the most important thing in life. Not everything should orbit around you, kids. That's not how it works. You want to know why so many people are miserable? It's because they expect everything to orbit around them. And God says, that's not how I work. I'm the most important thing. And that means everything orbits around me. Your marriage, your possessions, your money, your kids, your free time, all of it orbits around me. Origen, one of the early church fathers, said, what each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. So who's your God? Because we're all prone to have functional gods, aren't we? I mean, we're all prone to have functional gods that are different from actual gods or the God of the Bible. And listen, even really good things sometimes, like our families or, or, or jobs or, 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 or wonderful things that God's given us, they can become gods. So let me just read you a series of questions that, that I want you to kind of use as a diagnostic to maybe you could see what your functional God is. So who or what do you live for? Is it marriage? Is it children? Promotion? House? Beauty, sex, pleasure, comfort, leisure, sport, peace. Who or what do you live for? And remember, I know some of those things are good things, but when good things become God things, they become bad things. Who or what can you not live without? What is it that you've got to have that if it was gone right now, your whole sense of worth and living life would go away. Who or what do you run to in times of need? It's been a horrible day. All I can think about is sitting on the couch and pouring a glass and turning on the TV and forgetting the world. Or maybe it's not a glass of anything for you. Maybe it's that wonderful little carton with that girl leading the cow on it. Bluebell. 
If you don't know the logo, come on. Who or what do you run to in times of need? Over the last six months, as the world's lost its mind, what have you ran to? What causes your highest joy and your lowest grief? Who or what is at the center of your life? What is your schedule orbit around? What is your budget orbit around? There's a good place to look for your functional God. Right? This one's a good one for me. Especially those of us who, who maybe have some mental struggles. Is what is your emotional life orbit around? I mean, what are those things that can just bring you to the ground? See, the answer to all those questions would reveal to you your functional God. See, God loves to set free, but then listen to me, church. We have to live free. He set the people free, but now he's saying, you have to walk with me. That's living free. So God does the setting free. You don't have to worry about that. He does the saving. He does the setting free. God leads. He helps us in the living free, but we have to walk in the freedom that he has now set before us. And see, what destroys a father's heart more than anything else is when the children he loves who are set free don't live free. I officiated a wedding last night. And one of the things I said in the wedding was this. And forsaking all others belong wholly to you. In Isaiah chapter 54 verse 5, God speaking says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. So God's saying, hey, church, you are my bride, and I am your husband. And listen to me. I want to be exclusive. I don't want a competitor. I don't want to just be your favorite husband. I want to be your only husband. I want to be God in your life above all else. I want you to forsake all others and keep only to me all your worship, all your love, all your joys to be found in me. I don't want another God before my face. So have you been set free this morning? I mean, if you're in here, do, do you know Jesus? Have you given Jesus your sin? Is he your exodus who has freed you from your shackles of slavery? Is he your God? If not today, I would encourage you to take your sin to Jesus. Allow him to forgive you. Allow him to lead you. Because if you're not a Christian, then listen, you're in slavery. And so today, as the gospel has been preached, allow Jesus to set you free. And brothers and sisters, you've been set free. Now by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, listen, you can live free. You can leave your sin here today. You can repent of your functional gods and you can walk with Jesus. And so my prayer going into today was that God would reveal all to all of us our functional gods. That he would show us those areas where we've placed other things as God in our life and that today we would say, Father, forgive me. 
I thank you that there is now no condemnation in you, and I lay that down. I walk away from that so that I can walk with you as my God. I take away anything that I've put before your face, and I will forsake all others, and I will follow only you. And if you do that, man, we can walk in the freedom that he's given us. We can run and play in the front yard. That's a good thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the commandments and I thank you that they are still binding on us. Father, I thank you for the grace that we see before we even get to one command, the grace that that shows us of how you have saved us and redeemed us and set us free. And now because we are free, you say, kids, I love you and I want you to see how now to live free and how to flourish and how to go and play in the front yard. So I pray today that if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that as the gospel has been preached and proclaimed, that today they would give you their sin, that you would redeem them and save them, and that they would not leave here until they tell someone today about what you've done for them. And then, Father, for the rest of us as believers, I pray that you would reveal to us, because we all have them, I have them. As I even said today, even in that emotional area, I, I, I tend to have functional gods when it comes to the things that bring me low or or bring me up and I ask you forgive me for those and that we would take away the functional gods that we put before your face and that we would forsake all others and cling only to you thank you for what you've given us thank you for Jesus who kept the law for us and who now walks alongside us not as our judge but as our guide and as our loving father who wants us to see how life works best And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would please stand as we sing.